pivoting. We all have to become really good pivoters. And I know that's a popular term, but that's what it's really made us become is really quick pivoters. And those that aren't quick to pivot are having some challenges. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Stacy LeBaron. She's the creator and host of the Community Cats podcast. Stacy has over 20 years of experience working with community cats in Massachusetts. She was also the president of the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society for 16 years. And since 2011, she's ran the MRFRS Mentoring Program, assisting over 80 organizations with setting up TNR programs and getting funding to support these programs. Stacy is very familiar with the animal welfare world and community and specifically the needs of animal welfare organizations that are unique. We talk about the fundraising challenges that animal welfare organizations run into, the challenges they've had as they've navigated 2020 and figured out how to deliver their services in a different environment. Stacey's a wealth of knowledge, so let's dive in. Stacey, you're, you know, the advocate and the voice behind the Community Cats podcast. But I'm curious, like, you know, it's not every day that someone wakes up and says like, hey, I'm going to start a podcast that advocates and really curates conversations of cat advocates around the country and talks about the key issues around how we can serve, you know, that specific cause. So what was the squiggle that got you to this point with the Community Cats podcast. Oh, Noah, yeah, thank you so much for having me on this show, and I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, the Community Cats podcast. So I've now recorded over 380 episodes. We've been around since 2016. And um, the reason that I started the show was I had just spent about 20 years running a nonprofit organization in Massachusetts called the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. I had learned a lot about successful trap neuter return programs, spay neuter programs. I ran a mobile spay neuter clinic called the Catmobile for folks that are interested in cartoon characters. Everybody wants to drive a Catmobile around the country and all that stuff. It's great for a parade, that's for sure. We're going to have to come back to this, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, we, um, you know, really were successful in the Massachusetts area with regards to reducing the cat overpopulation problem. And I had learned a lot about, you know, how to be impactful in your own community. I had run a mentoring program with about 80 different other organizations around the country. But when I left that organization, I had 400 groups on my waiting list wanting assistance. So folks wanted information. They wanted access to information. They wanted to learn how they could improve the quality of cat lives in their towns. Um, And I just couldn't reach them. And at that point in time, I was driving back and forth from Vermont to Massachusetts a lot and my, with my 12-year-old son at the time. And he was just getting into um, guitar, recording guitar. And he said, you know, Mom, it'd be super easy to set up a podcast. I can help set it up for you. And so it was due to my son at the time who really motivated me because I said, well, I feel bad leaving these folks behind. I've never left people behind. It was very important to me to return phone calls, to try and help people 
even if it's just a little bit or just to be sympathetic, it's really important. And um, so my son's the one who really got me going. And I decided to start the Community Cats podcast. And um, I've been just, you know, rocking along for the last four years. And it's been great. And what I love about that story is how like your intention was to serve. And then you were trying to identify the medium as to which you could use to actually accomplish that mission. And a lot of what we do as nonprofits have to think creatively around that. You know, we have this cause that we're really passionate about or this story. And there's a set of supporters out there that we're trying to connect to our cause or our story. And really the like systems and the strategies in between or the channels that we use to connect those two things can vary, but it really does start with the mission. And it sounds like, you know, that's exactly how your story started. So I'm curious, like, how, how has it been going? How do you use the medium to communicate with your, your community? Um, I want to kind of dig into the weeds a little bit about this podcast community that you've built and how you think about that as relating to doing the actual work, which is serving the, you know, the cat community. Yeah, so there's lots of different technologies involved, and um, and and we certainly know our avatar. Um, for folks that don't know, you're you're supposed to know what your avatar is, which is sort of who's your typical client. So if you're thinking in the fundraising space, you're you know who is your typical donor, um, and who do you aspire to have as your typical donor, and trying to really understand who they are. So you know, I'm thinking out there, you know, who is my typical listener. So in, in my dream world, I, you know, there's, it can be a very isolating world. Animal welfare can be overwhelming. There are people out there that have too many cats. There are people out there that are trapping and sacrificing their family lives. Um, it's a very emotional time. So my vision initially too, was having, um, you know, somebody who's out there trapping, you know, 1am in the morning, They've, they're watching to get the cats in the traps. They're drinking their their coffee from their local coffee shop and, you know, they're feeling like they're all alone and overwhelmed. And here I come and I'm, you know, sharing information with them, sharing stories about others around there. So I did have to learn the technology though. I wanted to provide this information. I didn't know how to do it, but I needed to learn about the technology. So I needed to learn about how do I record a show like we're recording right now? You know, how, what's the type of software that I need? how do I track all this information because you do a recording and that's just about, you know, 10% of the process. Then there's an editing process. There's a posting process. There's a hosting process. And I am by far not a technologically oriented person. Um, the one thing that I feel like I am good about is I'm not scared of technology. So, um, and I'm also the first person to say, I don't, I don't know how to handle this. And this looks like it's Greek to me. So I will try and find others to help me. So I think the one thing that's great about technology too is it actually helps create more community because it'll bring people in because we have to work together to sort of make magic out of that technology. And we really want to be more inclusive rather than exclusive. Um, and certainly with the animal welfare organizations that I've gotten involved with since coronavirus has hit, there's a lot of groups that were involved with just managing everything with just pen and paper, basically, and just keeping their files in a file cabinet. And they've been forced to move to the cloud, to uh, software, to a CRM, and um, they've had to make that leap. And you know, once you take that little first step, the rest is easy. Yeah, and that's interesting. So what I'm hearing is that in the animal welfare space, uh, especially because a lot of it's a lot of work. You know, as you mentioned, it, it can be lonely. It, it can be you know overwhelming as far as the amount of work that you know the team is asked to do. 
where like systems and processes and technology aren't necessarily the first thing they go to. It's how do I get everything done today so I can get to tomorrow and do everything all over again. So how are, how do you navigate those conversations with um, them? Kind of what are the sticking points? And then how do you unlock uh, visibility into using systems and platforms to be able to uh, further enable people and processes that are actually helping connect supporters to the story that these org- the, the animal welfare organizations are working on? Yeah, so the best way is um, by sharing um, and um, storytelling or having other organizations share their uh, successes with using a new, um, either a new software app or package or um, we have in the animal welfare space, we have quite a few programs like Pet Find or Adopt-A-Pet. Um, we're doing a lot of what are called virtual adoptions or contactless adoptions. So organizations that don't have a shelter who are foster-based organizations are actually becoming more successful at adopting because they're used to having this sort of outsourced adoption process and they've really adapted to it. So in the past, where you might have um, you know, done an adoption where the person comes to the shelter and they actually meet the animal, now they're doing FaceTime videos from the foster home so that they can see the animal in a home-like situation and how they're going to respond. And it's actually a more accurate portrayal of how that cat or dog is going to behave um, in your home versus what they're going to feel like in a shelter with you know 49 other animals. So it's actually a more accurate representation. And so it's a, a, a sex, more successful placement option. So people are finding out through... Uh, the stories of other organizations and sharing and networking that, hey, you know, really, this is something that we really need to try and and figure out. Um, I will say that that foster home to home placement can be labor intensive if you're not smart with your systems. And so that there are ways to do it where you're not spending a ton of time on the telephone. I can't tell you how many stories I hear about, oh, it takes me you know, five phone calls to be able to figure out a time for everybody to meet. And I'm like, well, why don't you use a calendar software to do that? Why don't you use, you know, an Acuity or Calendly or one of those? And it seems like it's something simple, but a lot of organizations aren't even thinking that way. So if there's something slowing you down, then there's surely something out there that will speed you up. And so please take a look for it. And you bring up a good point that I do believe that there's been this like slow drip of what what's kind of typically called like digital transformation in the nonprofit space and different verticals have kind of accelerated slower or quicker um, depending on just kind of the needs. And I, what's interesting about the current global pandemic though, is it's kind of forced an acceleration across the board for digital adoption and digital acceleration or digital transformation across all processes. Like you mentioned digital or uh touchless adoptions or kind of curbside pickup. I know someone I talked to said their shelter was offering curbside pickup for animals um, because they were still taking care of them at the shelter. And that's all really different. And you're talking about kind of digitizing the entire process, like booking on a calendar, FaceTiming with the animal, um, connecting with them, trying to identify how that might relate to you and what you're looking for and how you can best serve the animal. So much of the process now has to be digital. And I'm curious, like, what part of that do you think is a good thing? And what will stick around after, you know, after we're all back to quote unquote normal? What are some of the things that you're seeing in the animal welfare space that will probably that should stick? Like you mentioned one already, like foster home to to home adoption uh, has a great success rate, but it does maybe require additional 
processes. So kind of what do you expect or what do you hope to see stick around in your space after we go back to normal? So that is, it's a great question. Um, and in the animal welfare space there, we will probably continue to embrace technology and uh, utilize that technology to help streamline the process. So uh, point of sale payment issues, um, being able to really streamline paperwork. So using um, paperless adoptions uh, and as well as with the spay neuter clinics being all paperless and keeping everything very digital. I think that will certainly stay with us. I think having a cashless environment is probably also going to stay. So then you're talking about merchant services and how important it is to make sure that you're doing your due diligence to make sure that the fees that you're being charged are are accurate and fair and correct and all that kind of stuff. Because I do know credit card fees are certainly an issue for a lot of organizations, but I do feel that we are going to be moving away from a cashless uh, society, and that's across the board for you know any any nonprofit with that's doing any sort of a program revenue or donation situation. Um, I think that in looking forward in our designs of our buildings and our spaces, we're going to be repurposing our spaces so that they can accommodate um, a safe parameter, so we can easily do our work with six with social distancing, being six feet apart which can be challenging when you're talking about a spay-neuter clinic. And if you have a, a technician and a veterinarian working together, there are certainly times that they cannot be six feet apart. So that's been a, a large challenge. But large-scale large adoption events um, may not happen in the way that they currently do. So they're going to they're gonna use a, like a, a restaurant wait table app, um, and you'll do an appointment-based uh, situation. So they'll still serve the same amount of animals, but you're going to be on a 15 minute appointment based cycle and, um, working from that standpoint, it's going to be a while before we see a large group all together doing a big, big event together. And I just think we have to be patient with that, but the numbers, you can still achieve the same numbers and the same goals doing a, like a virtual walk, uh, virtual online fundraisers. Those are big conversation pieces right now. All of those are events that now can go global. You have a global reach where in the past for a walk, a local walk, you had a very regional reach. So you really should think that you could scale your events up 10 times at minimum because your reach is just, it's mind blowing. You just, you can go everywhere. If you're doing good work, you can get supporters everywhere now. And I just think that's absolutely tremendous. Absolutely. And I want to get into like the fundraising and kind of the community activation side of this. But one thing I couldn't help think about as you were describing some of the shifts that uh, the animal welfare industry is having to go through uh, and maybe even improving their processes due to kind of the global pandemic and the, the sheltering at home is how similar it is to some other industries um, outside very different context. But things like, um, you know, restaurants that were traditionally, you know, brick and mortar restaurants where they were dependent on having 80, 90% uh, occupancy every night with like a two or three rotation turnover. And now restaurants are actually popping up that instead of them being open to the public, they're actually just dry kitchen or kitchens that are just for delivery only. So restaurants are now opening in big cities that you can't even go to. They're actually just opening the 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 uh, the locations in the kitchens for delivery only, and it's a closed kitchen. And I wonder if too, like, there's a future where there's kind of this digital first model 
for the animal welfare space. Another one is like things like Carvana, where it's a digital um, car delivery service. Like I can go online, pick a car, and it shows up at my house. So they've re- revolutionized the whole experience of buying a car. Um, and I feel like what you're describing is that some of that's already happening now in the experience to adopt or rehome a pet. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's even some lessons that both can learn from each other as we continue to think, how do we actually do digital program delivery in the future? Have you thought through any of that? Or if there's other industries that maybe we need, the animal welfare industry should be pulling from to help them kind of navigate some of these changes? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the restaurant space because we actually do pull a bit from them. There's a, an app called the Crew app, which is used in scheduling wait staff, but it's actually being used in the animal welfare space to manage the movement and, and um, organization of neonatal bottle baby kittens. Uh, there's a, a boutique uh, rescue group in Arizona that's using this, and it's a way for them to be able to communicate amongst the foster homes, who needs to pick up kittens somewhere, who needs to take them to the vet, who needs to get their supplies given to them. And um, and it's been an incredibly valuable tool. Um, also, the animal welfare space is really embracing the use of Airtable. I mean, obviously, Google Docs, that's the first step. Most people move to Excel and Google Docs. Then they go into Airtable. Um, and I think that there's been a lot of movement with regards to Airtable for networking amongst the organizations. There's been a lot of networking and synergies, conversations about, hey, maybe two organizations can share the same fundraiser um, staff person. So there's also this sort of collaborative, semi-hybridy merger talk going on, especially with municipal organizations that have already been notified that they're going to learn lose some funding. And then the smaller groups who feel like they're losing funding because they can't transport in animals from the south and, and that kind of thing. So there's there are conversations around mergers because there's going to be in every business space, there's going to be retractions and there's going to be growth in different areas. And as you're seeing it in the restaurant business, there's restaurants going out of business, but then there's new models that are coming forward. And that's also happening in the animal welfare space too. And there is a national group of um, like 300 individuals have this whole umbrella group going on and uh, with this massive G suite. And we're all tackling different changing topics as to how the animal welfare space is um, changing and working over time. But for each individual organization, you're at a different point on this sort of timeline of digital life. And you need to focus on, you know, am I in the baby steps standpoint or am I in the midlife standpoint? And how can I redirect pivoting. We all have to become really good pivoters. And I know that's a popular term, but that's what it's really made us become is really quick pivoters. And those that aren't quick to pivot are having some challenges. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's going to be, you mentioned that retraction and expansion or even just new creation. And I think that's what I'm curious about. You know, I've been in the, the nonprofit space for a long time and I've always been fascinated by growth through or growth or increased impact specifically, not just on the funding side, but increased impact by merger and acquisitions between nonprofits. And I don't know if it's like as common as it maybe it should be in our space. Um, but I, that, that process of those combining of and building synergy amongst is really interesting. And I think that will be a huge uh, kind of movement that happens, as you mentioned, as organizations know that their work is essential, but maybe the funding isn't there anymore. 
And they really need to get creative on how they can continue to serve the impact, even if that means shifting how they're organized. Uh, and I think that's going to be something that's going to be interesting. Yeah. And I've, I've been involved on both sides of that conversation. I have had organizations spin out of the nonprofit that I ran and I've merged with organizations too. And, you know, that's, that's a deep question um, because obviously there's a whole merging of database information that goes on from the operations side, as well as from the fundraising side. And that, that's, that is a nerve wracking period of time. Indeed. And we, you already alluded to this once, but obviously, you know, a big part of the animal welfare space is community activation and community engagement. I know I've been involved with a few and it was all through kind of the experience of physically going to, you know, an animal welfare organization's location. Uh, Maybe it's because I was looking at, you know, rehoming an animal or uh, bringing, you know, home, uh, however, or just volunteering. And now a lot of those opportunities are kind of not available, you know, and even the community outreach ones, like I remember seeing a lot of animal welfare organizations like at farmers markets or at the local pet shop. And it was all kind of like in your community, physically driven engagement. And now that's not there. And so I'm curious, like what you're seeing uh, organizations do successfully to still build that community activation and raise the much needed funding they need to fill in the gaps uh, for their mission. Uh, or what suggestions do you have? What do you hope to see animal welfare organizations doing on that front? Yeah, uh, and I, this is definitely, it's a work in progress. So um, animal welfare organizations, I'd say in general, are looking at how they can serve the needs of the animals in the community that does not necessarily mean sheltering and adoption. So sheltering and adoption has is an important component of what they do, but it's not going to be the primary component. So they're more focused on, say someone says, I want to surrender my um, cat because it's peeing on the walls or something like that. And they'll say, well, is the cat spayed? I mean, is the cat neutered or spayed or whatever? And um, they'll say, no, my cat's not neutered. Well, how about if we assist and get you access to some low-cost neutering services, would you be willing to keep the cat if the cat stopped behaving that way? Oh, yes, I love the cat, but the cat's trashing my apartment. I'm renting. My landlord will kill me if they find out, blah, blah. And so, you know, we work to triage the situation, but to enable so the person's able to keep their pet. Um, And so that has been a shifting focus of rather than being, okay, we'll just take the cat in and then we'll place it and figure it out from there. It's becoming more of a, how can we help out in the community, ensure that the animals are well cared for and, um, and keep them in the community with a focus of making sure that everybody is spayed or neutered. All of the cats and dogs are spayed and neutered in the community so that they're not contributing to the overpopulation situation. So it's a, it's a, it's a external or I'm here I am thinking, you know, it's an export rather than an import, you know, that type of thing where we're trying to export our services out into the community with wellness, it's called One Health uh, Focus, rather than just taking animals in at a very high volume rate. So if an animal is healthy, appears healthy, we're going to not necessarily rush to take the animal in because probably somebody is feeding that, that cat. You know, In most cases, it's a free roaming cat. Some areas of the country do have free roaming dogs, but most cases we're talking a free roaming cat. But if there's a healthy animal out there, most cases, somebody's caring for that animal. And so we're just going to do everything in our best efforts to make sure it 
continues to be healthy and is spayed and neutered and is able to get back to its home. So it's more identification, microchipping, scanning, those kinds of things rather than sheltering. And that's a, a big change at this point in time. Yeah. And that's so interesting. It reminds me, I had heard a story and you probably know this story better than I do because I'm, I only have, you know, the shelter of, or the, the, the framing of the details, but there was like an, uh, an organization group that decided to like help instead of taking animals in, they actually like paid people to keep their animals. Cause usually it was like, Oh, I don't have the funds to buy the food or get this thing set up. And so they did do that triage work and it was actually much more cost effective for them to triage rather than to take them in and then replace them. And it was kind of this big movement where, and it was, there was an individual that I can't, I'm, I'm blanking on the story and I'm sure there's plenty of those stories. Um, but that whole model of triage versus just accepting and replacing, um, I know has been a huge, uh, it has had huge impact on the animal welfare industry. Yeah, there is a model called Pets for Life, which is sponsored by the Humane Society of the United States. So if people are interested in digging in more to that, there's um, they can certainly Google that and that'll come right up. But they're very popular in, in quite a few different cities around the country. And, um, and that's been really a big focus of their model, which is really being out and in the community and in doing everything that you need to do in order to ensure that those um, pets are able to stay with their families. Yeah, I know. I think the one story that was on the podcast was how they like would provide uh, dog training lessons because they felt like one of the big reasons people were trying to surrender their their dogs specifically was because of behavioral issues. And they realized like, oh, if we just presented access to training, like that would at least mitigate some of the cases there. Um, and they would offer that to individuals. So it was really an interesting model because I know, you know, I've had my series of pets um, over the years and um, know that it's, you know, it's challenging. It's a commitment. And I know that those resources are always helpful to be able to have. Yeah. I actually refer to the toolbox. We all have this toolbox full of different programs that we use for the various needs of the people that reach out to us. Um, and so, you know, we have um, at, at the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society and many other organizations have similar programs. It's called the bridge program. So if there's somebody who is, you know, going to be homeless for a couple of months or, um, you know, have a situation where they're uncertain about, you know, whether the cats are in a safe place or not, we'll take them in, put them in foster care, but yet we don't um, take ownership of the cats. The cats then um, are held in foster care. And then when that person gets their situation straightened out, they can get their pets back. And so, you know, a whole range of different things like that, as well as you can, you know, pay for your um, the, you know, pet deposit for an apartment to help people be able to keep their pets, providing food, veterinary services, all those kinds of things. Um, we have a care for life program, which does some of that and, and another program called FAR. So lots of organizations trying to work on that, that preventative component rather than just being like, okay, bring them into the shelter. Now we have, you know, 500 cats here when we really only can have room for a hundred cats. And so we have to make euthanasia decisions. That's not, that's not what we all want to do. So let's get out into the community and just prevent those cats from coming in in the first place. Absolutely. And so I, I know we were almost out of time, but I did want to kind of dig further into the fundraising side of this, because you mentioned some organizations that are, um, uh, semi-funded by government or even foundations have been notified that they might not receive the funding that they expect and really depend on to operate going forward. So what are the two or three practical advice is you would provide those out there in the animal welfare space or honestly other industries where that's happening? Like arts and culture is another big one. 
Um, and I know there's human services in some capacity is having uh, those challenges as well. What, what can they do to effectively fundraise so that they can do the mission critical work that the community relies on them to do? Yeah, and I'm going to sort of approach this from a standpoint of the the sort of the three phases of fundraising um, that I have seen with regards to the directors of development that I've talked with since the beginning of March. So when COVID first hit, everybody freaked out, um, furloughed their development staff. Many of them did. They, you know, said, oh, we got to we gotta cut back. This is going to be really tough. And so many organizations cut back on their development staff. There were a few organizations, maybe more than a few, but there were a few in my experience that actually kept their development staff on board and said, you know, you're going to be more important than ever right now. First thing that these organizations did in the first 30 days was reach out to all their leadership donors and just say, hey, this is what we're seeing is happening down the road. This is what things look like and um, just want to keep you informed and we'll, we'll keep you engaged and, and make you know, you know how we're handling the animals in the community and still assisting the needs of the community. So they really opened up the lines of communication with their leadership donors because when times get tough, um, the leadership donors are your really their backbone of the organization. So then in the second phase, people started looking at their um, events and saying, well, you know, it's going to be May or June. We have an, uh, an online walk we have to do, um, or we had a, a, a walk. We have to turn it into an online walk or a virtual walk. Um, and then they had to reach out to all their sponsors that were already committed, and they had to go back and, and repurpose those sponsors. So this was a great thing, actually, because... Um, they already had the money committed by the sponsors. So the money was already out the door. And in many cases, most of those sponsors said, yeah, it's virtual. It's okay. I'm going to stick with you because I believe in what you're doing, which is a wonderful thing. And in the past, if you tried to do something virtual, it was really, I found really hard to get sponsors. But now we've had them dip their toe in the water already. And hopefully they see the benefits of it and the exposure of it. So I think that that's a big boon for the online and virtual space in getting more sponsors. I, I really see a, a greater appreciation from local businesses in that virtual sponsorship realm. Um, and so they were sort of remaking the events. Um, you know, how can we make this look the same but yet be online? And now I'm entering. We're entering into the third phase, where rather than we're repurposing events, folks are now thinking about entirely new virtual events that don't have an in-person model to go with. They're looking at um, how to leverage, you know, uh, photo contests or trivia or some sort of gaming, using gaming as a fundraiser, um, and, and how to really do something that's really new and going to break through as a new model going forward. Um, education, having their education programs more as fundraising programs. So I talk about education fundraising together, which I think is going to be more closely married. So when you're doing a fundraiser now, the, your attendees are going to walk out with something more than just like, hey, I, I donated $1,000 tonight. They're going to walk out with, with a bigger piece of an understanding of the organization. And it's more than just the, the fundraising video. Um, so I, I really think it's exciting to see what the what creative folks are going to come up with in this third phase. We're just sort of entering into it, but it's going to be a whole new range of things that we're going to add to our fundraising toolkit. And with that is that individual donor experience 
that's walking a donor through the organization and helping build them and grow through that to help get them into that leadership donor standpoint. And I'm fascinated by this process and you obviously are too, because you're at Virtuous, but is taking that individual donation and saying, how can we serve you best through this journey of getting to know our organization and the good work that we do that you're supporting? And how can we make this relationship the best relationship possible when you're talking with thousands and thousands of different people? How do you do that? And I think that's going to be the next generation for us. Absolutely agree. And I, I would echo that is that we did go through phase one and phase two and, and many organizations saw success through that. And now it really is this like, okay, well now what, you know, this isn't just a six month thing. This is probably, an, you know, in some ways an indefinite thing. Um, obviously there's going to be more of a crisis period, but then there's kind of a recovery period, but then also how do we build resilience going forward? And I think that's where it kind of circles back to what you said about expanding your toolkit and really understanding, you know, the first principles of fundraising, like who are your supporters? Why do they give to you? And what is your story? How do you like, what is the mission here? Why, why is this important? If we didn't do this, what would happen? And being a little bit more flexible on how we get there. I think there wasn't over indexing on the fundraising activity as the purpose. So things like galas and walks and runs and events and donor meetings, it's that we those were there because they were trying to bridge the gap between the story and the supporter or the supporter and the story. Just because those now went away doesn't mean we can't do that. We just have to be creative. And I think that's what's going to be interesting about this third phase. Well, Stacey, we're out of time and I greatly appreciate it. If someone wants to learn a little bit more about your work and what you do on the Community Cats podcast, but also with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, where should they go to learn more and connect with the work that you're doing? Oh, yeah. Thank you for asking, Noah. Um, so my website is a communitycatspodcast.com. So feel free to go there. There's everything is there. And um, actually, in the fall, I'm doing a fundraising day. So it's an all-day um, event um, focused around fundraising initiatives and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I'm on Facebook, Community Cats Podcast. I'm on Instagram. Twitter, um, and then also the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society is just the uh, letters M, R, F as in Frank, R, S as in Sam, dot org. And you can find them and, um, and they have all their information about the programs that they continue to run and the good works that they do in Massachusetts. Um, best way to reach me is through the communitycatspodcast.com website. Excellent. Well, Stacey, thanks for the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that 
are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. Oh,